people freak out about this. Not, you don't have to freak. I'm not going to talk about budgeting here, but I am going to talk about understanding your spending patterns. Mm-hmm. And when we discuss that, what we get often is guilt, shame, confusion, disbelief, uh, a whole bunch of different thoughts and emotions. And and we say all the time, we don't really care what people are spending money on for the most part. Um, but what we do care is that it's sustainable, right? That it brings them that happiness and that that can continue. So the question really is, do you know, what, what do you, what are your feelings tied to with what you spend on and how you spend and why you do that? Do you even understand that? Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. This podcast is intended for free thinkers, entrepreneurs, and knowledge seekers. Join us as we discuss relevant financial topics, explore with guests their financial journeys, and engage with experts in industries such as space, media and entertainment, real estate, and many more. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. I am your host, Dan. This is your hostess, Caroline. And today, we're going to be talking about money and its relationship with happiness. So let's get this show on the road. Caroline, can money buy happiness? You know, that is a that is a common expression. Money can't buy happiness. Mm-hmm. It's been a hot topic, long debated for many, many years. And I think it can be debated both ways. There's probably instances when money can't buy happiness. But I also would like to argue that there are some scenarios where money can buy happiness and it can improve the happiness of people. And there have been academic studies um, and and coursework that revolve around this. There was a major study. I think think Danny Kahneman was involved in it. Uh, He didn't act alone in 2009, 2010, that um, try to develop a threshold as to a dollar amount that happiness peaks at, right? I think peak is is probably the the right word to use because we've also seen research to argue that that number is, it's not a hard, fast number, which we would have expected that. But on average in 2010, what the research showed was that uh, money peaked at about $75,000 of annual income a year on average throughout the nation. Mm -hmm. So peaked, but doesn't necessarily slow down, right? We've also seen similar figures from a household level at about 123,000, where at that point in time, it just, you start seeing diminishing returns Mm -hmm. on money's impact on your happiness. And I think that there's a newer study that has come out just in the matter of a few months that says that those diminishing returns very well may continue to to be there, right? But diminish until is it 500K, I think. Right, 500,000. Which is a annual lot income of money. per year. Yes, which, yes. Is, which is a lot of money. But it's it's interesting to see that I think there's probably a belief that, hey, the more money I have, the happier I'm going to be. There's a lot of reasons why that actually doesn't work, which we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it is not the case. Money make, can, make, can make things easier. And that can definitely make people happier. But sometimes we right. tend to get in our own ways. Right. And I'm sure these these annual figures vary by region. I think it's probably just, correct me if I'm wrong, just averages across mm-hmm. the United States, right? Like 
$75,000 back in 2010 could probably buy you a lot more in Madison, Wisconsin than it could in Los Angeles. I'm sure. So I'm sure it varies by region. And I think it's kind of just that point where you have the money necessary to buy everything that you need as far as like food, shelter, the the basic needs. And then also you can afford to buy some things that you want as well on top of that. So I think that that's kind of what plays into finding that sweet spot number where obviously if you can afford all of your basic needs and then some, you're probably going to be happier than someone who cannot do so. But then we kind of just talk about like, how can money buy happiness? Hmm. Well, and I think that's probably a good point to talk about some of the academics behind this thought process, mm-hmm. of which I know that I know you've been exposed in various ways, uh, as have I, um, on some of the the methodology here to really optimize how this can be achieved. Right. You want to talk a little bit about maybe some examples uh, or or classifications that we find this more commonly done. Absolutely. So I actually read this book called Happy Money. It was written by Michael Norton and Elizabeth Dunn. And they shared five principles that it takes for money to increase your happiness. It's kind of like five examples of ways that money can buy happiness, essentially. Number one was buying experiences. So rather than buying items, paying for an experience because that can be tied to memories and potentially doing that experience with other people. So that increases your relationships. And they argue that buying experiences makes us happier than buying material items. We're seeing with this particular one, we're seeing an increase, a tick up in the importance of this in the millennial generation and younger, where we're definitely hearing a lot more conversation about this. It's always been in play, but people didn't really talk about buying experiences the same way as they do now. And so it's interesting, though, to see that that there is research behind it that's, that shows that this does mean more. And it's probably meant more for a very long time. It's just now we're finally discussing it. Right, right. That's a great thing to point out. And there was another another one of their examples was making time. So spending money to free up some time, mm-hmm. which I thought was a very interesting concept. If hiring someone to do the tasks, such as housekeeping tasks that would normally take away a chunk of your time, hiring somebody to do that, paying money for that service would free up your time and allow you to do other things that make you happy, whether it be spend time with family or spending your evenings going for a walk rather than tidying up and doing laundry, et cetera. That is one way that you could potentially increase your happiness. One other example that they pointed out the third example is to make it a treat so that is taking larger potentially p- taking a larger ticket item and instead buying more smaller ticket items more frequently or for example if you go to starbucks or if you go to get coffee every single morning wherever that may be if instead you decide to take that down to maybe once or twice a week You might gain more happiness by having that coffee infrequently because the value of it might be increasing because it is now a more limited thing. I love this tip. It's to me, it's the one that fascinates me the most 
because people seem to focus on the big ticket items, the house or the new car. And I, I don't know why this is the case, but I feel like there's a lot of stress associated with trying to achieve those big ticket items or maybe hype. We hype it up a lot because we're looking forward to it, maybe because it's stressing us out. Right. And it, it's it's the little things, the little details in all sorts of relationships and in life that we tend to really remember and cherish. Mm-hmm. They're easier to achieve, but then they also don't happen because we they're also easier to ignore. So it's it's fascinating to find that the little details are what actually are going to drive our happiness. So focusing more on that has a positive outcome. That's yeah. interesting. I completely agree. And I think one other thing, this kind of leads into the next example that they talk about, and it's paying now and consuming later. So typically today, credit cards are very prevalent in society today. With credit cards, we buy now, we get to experience the dopamine hit now when we're buying an item or an experience, what have you, and then pay for it later down the line after we've experienced it. So instead, they mention, they being Michael Norton and Elizabeth Dunn, mention reversing that. Pay for the experience or the item up front and kind of separate paying for it and consuming it in a reverse from what we normally do. So for example, you're going on a trip to Florida in six months. You pay for it up front now, and then you experience the emotions that come with paying for something. Now, those potentially might be negative emotions. This is a lot of money coming out of my pocket. Not sure how I feel about this. And then in six months, when you get to go and experience the trip, you're separated from those negative emotions. And then you can therefore potentially enjoy your trip even more because you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I spent X amount of money on this trip Mm -hmm. and how that makes you feel. And we also know that money means different things for different people. And for a lot of people, it's, it's a reward for your hard work. So I can see that relating in, Mm -hmm. in this concept as well, where you're, you've put up the work, you've taken the pain of paying mm-hmm. for it. And now you, you get to watch that reward get right. closer and closer. It's, it, it, we also get a lot of, a lot of people that will say that they, that when they plan a vacation, they try to plan the next vacation immediately upon coming back, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Because I could see how that would work very well in line with, with this too. And this is a concept in finance we see all the time. When people talk about delayed gratification, there's a balance here, right? I, I remember one time watching Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett at the shareholder Berkshire shareholder meeting talk to um, a, a young boy who was discussing going on a on a trip, I think, to Disneyland, the Disney World, and um, and watching them kind of play around with that, where they were trying to encourage him to actually do the trip now and not try to wait 10 years Mm -hmm. so clearly there's a balance to everything that we're saying right you definitely want to have these experiences because we just mentioned too that that's very valuable but um but maybe maybe today's society of i think is perhaps a little too heavy to basically get the piece now and pay for it later so perhaps a perhaps a shift somewhere in between or more towards what Caroline's talking about would be a healthy concept. Right. I definitely 
definitely can um, see how delayed gratification plays a big role in this. Like you mentioned, I think now in today's society, we are so used to, I want it. I get it right now. Mm -hmm. I think of something, order it, and it's at my house and potentially even the same day, honestly, with today's technology. So delayed gratification is a huge thing. And I'm sure that plays a very large role in this happiness principle of buying now, paying for it now, and consuming later. You have one more principle too, correct, that this book spells out? Yes, there's one more principle, and that is investing in others. So this principle talks about when people give money, they tend to feel happier, whether they are paying for a friend's lunch, you go out to lunch with your friend and you say, Hey, I'm going to get this bill. Or this could potentially also be related to charitable giving as well. So donating to a cause that makes you happy may make you happier. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of research on this where, I mean, this may sound selfish, but you're, but it's, it's, it's what it is. But when we do something for somebody else in our brain, it makes us feel better about ourselves. So this such an interesting concept It is, uh, but it, it works. And so giving, giving gifts is a really important human function. So it makes sense that it fits into play here too. Absolutely. So just to to recap some of these, again, buying experiences, Mm -hmm. making time, make it a treat, right? Focus on the small details, Mm -hmm. pay now, consume later, and invest in others. Yep. So these are the five principles of happy money from the book that I read, Happy Money by, again, Michael Norton and Elizabeth Dunn. I definitely recommend reading this, by the way, if you're at all interested. Yeah, so to sort of round this out, I mean, Dan, how does this relate to financial planning? Because that is what we do here at LBW. So how does money buying happiness relate to what we do? Well, we've our, our viewpoint has always been that that the idea behind money is that it should make your life, your quality of life better and those around you that you wish to share it with. So there's really no other point um, about, you know, related to money besides that. That's what it's designed to do. People will use it for other things, of course, uh, feeling power or being able to have things in front of them to sometimes allow fill a void to make them feel like they're, they're happy. Um, there's all sorts of things, but at the end of the day, that's what that's what we're trying to achieve, right? Is a, is mm-hmm. a high quality life, which Absolutely. means a happy life. So, really, very, very important on the work that we see, and it takes different forms, right? Um, it's people freak out about this. Not you don't have to freak. I'm not, not going to talk about budgeting here, but I am going to talk about understanding your spending patterns. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you have to change it or limit it. But to understand your spending patterns, which most people really don't, I think a lot of times when we see this conversation begin, that people think that they know their spending patterns and they're often very, very surprised. They have an idea, but to what extent? Um, and when we discuss that, what we get often is guilt, shame, confusion, disbelief, uh, a whole bunch of different thoughts and emotions. But a lot of times we will get people that will say, I just, 
I spend too much. And sometimes they don't, from a number standpoint, spend too much. We see that. So a lot of times we have to stop someone and say, actually, based on your income and your expenses, you don't spend too much from a quantitative concept, but maybe from a qualitative standpoint, you might. Sometimes that's just a matter of someone else stepping in and showing you that what you're doing is sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, and we say all the time, we don't really care what people are spending money on for the most part. Um, but what we do care is that it's sustainable, right? That it brings them that happiness and that that can continue. So the question really is, it, do you know, what, what do you, what are your feelings tied to with what you spend on and how you spend and why you do that? Do you even understand that? Do right. you really know what your patterns are? Are those patterns fitting what you're trying to achieve? If you know, for example, that you don't care about dining out, but you really love to travel and your travel agendas are just not that, not that filled up, but you're eating out every night, then, um, it seems very obvious that there should be a change there, but sometimes you just you don't realize it till you see it on paper, right? And what the opportunity cost can be. So we get in a lot of conversations about what are your spending patterns? Mm-hmm. Do they make sense based on what makes you happy? Do you know what makes you happy? And how do you feel about that? How do you feel about your spend? How do you feel about what those goals look like and so on? So there's a lot of conversation in that that is not so tangible, but um, very, very critical. That's one major way that we see this come into play. It could also be um, something we see a lot is not understanding a person's compensation plan and how that plays into those spending patterns. Interesting. You you know, like, are are you on variable income? And does that create a sense of fear? We've seen people on variable income that have been in variable income their entire life, and that doesn't bother them at all. And there are some people that lose their mind on it. So can those frequencies change? Is that the right comp plan for you? Mm -hmm. If you feel anxiety about this and that anxiety will cause you to change your spending patterns. And that could be problematic. If you are looking for a new job and that new job, which we see all the time, might have a comparable compensation figure tied to it. But the way that you receive that could be very different. You could be going from a salary job to a job that is very heavy in, um, let's say, RSUs, restricted stock units, or other perhaps options or a bonus structure. And just the flow of that money is going to change things, right? Going back to, to Caroline's point about the whole pay now, consume later, that might become more difficult to do. Right. So that's a great point. Understanding how that's going to change things, right? Mm-hmm. And what kind of happiness or fear that that might look look like. We get a lot of times questions from people um, about, hey, do you you know do your clients are they concerned about losing their job from a financial standpoint? Of course, the answer is yes, but there's a degree of preparation and understanding as to what that's going to look like that can cause an ease mm-hmm. and. And just the knowledge of having what those adjustments can look like and how it's going to affect the categories that you so nicely detailed out just is a is a big deal. One thing that um, that wasn't mentioned in those five that I personally, and Tim and I talk about this all the time, feel as we get older, specifically being in this field, um, we find a huge value, and that's the reduction of stress. So 
if we can utilize money to reduce stress, mm-hmm. or even I would say a less focus on making more money and more focus on reducing stress, it kind of reminds me a little of the time concept, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Because the more time I, I know that I get back in life reduces my stress, that may not be the same for somebody else, but it is a it is a factor that we see all the time um, in our work is that people are really stressed about money and what they they think they're supposed to do. Which again, another another piece where planning could be helpful is there is no rule book on that. So uh, what you think should happen in life doesn't necessarily apply to you, but just an understanding of what the stress consequence is and how you reduce that is a really great lead, I think, to being comfortable with your financial situation and being happy with it. Do you have any other thoughts to add to that? I think you see a lot. I think too. you summarized that very well, Dan. I would completely agree with everything that you said. I think part of it is variable on the person mm-hmm. and on their personality. So it kind of just boils down to spending in a month spending your money or not spending your money potentially in a way that allows you to do the things that make you happy or frees up your time so that you can do the things that make you happy. Or if spending money stresses you out, then maybe money really cannot buy you happiness. (laughs) Maybe you spending money on certain things makes you very stressed. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it, it just doesn't make sense for money to have a way to buy happiness for you. I mean, maybe there is some one of these principles that does apply to you. But honestly, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion here, I think it's probably different for everyone. It's not that uncommon for us to find people that have a very toxic viewpoint, an unhappy viewpoint when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. But usually it's coming from their, their past, um, how they typically grew up. And they they won't talk about it. There are generations that won't talk about. It. We've talked about that on other podcasts. They just they just feel uncomfortable discussing this. And the problem with anything is if you can't discuss it, then you don't have an opportunity to alter it and utilize it to to make it better. But that's that's um, that's not uncommon to find just a real ill uh, viewpoint on on money itself, and therefore it's difficult to even talk about what these adjustments might look like. That's what we got for you today. So thank you for joining uh, our podcast today. And as always, we appreciate your attention. And uh, until next time, take care of yourself. Like and subscribe. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments, broker-dealer or custodian may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, 
and Weiss Wealth Management LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.